Welcome to Mind Rewind, a voyage through mental health journeys by those with the courage and desire to share their experiences with you. Through the insight and lived experience of others, you may find the tools and strategies that could benefit you and the strength to reach out for support. Listen and you'll hear messages of hope and that there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome when there is a willingness and bravery to tackle your challenges. Just a warning that some of the content of this story may be confronting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, speak with someone today. Please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mind Rewind. My name is Jack Payne, and I'd like to welcome back Shah for her part B. I think we decided at the end of part A that there was still much of your story to tell. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear part B. So I think we kind of ended with you being in rehab in the last episode. Yeah. And maybe we pick up there. So if you can reiterate that first experience of rehab for us just briefly, and then we can push on to what happened beyond that. I was in year 10 and I was 16 and I picked up ice and I was using ice daily. And I'd been kicked out of school. I'd been fired from a job that I'd subsequently gotten from that and I'd been kicked out of home. And I was living in a in what I guess you would call it a squat house in Pennant Hills with a bunch of adults. And I reached a point of surrender and contacted one of my parents and she worked pretty hard to get me into a rehab. And I remember going to that rehab and like having, I think I, I think I did talk about this last time. Like, you know, I remember having this experience where I was doing the admissions process and they had asked me, you know, like what my mental health diagnoses were. And I'd had a really quick, you know, like rundown of like, I'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia, BPD, borderline, borderline bipolar, manic depression, anxiety, blah, 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 you know, eating disorders, et cetera. And then I was asked, you know, about my drug use and whether or not I think that affected my mental health. And it never had occurred to me that that was the case. You never felt there was a link between the two? No, I think because I spoke about this last time, but I think that there was a disconnect for me around if you'd had the life that I'd had, you would use drugs the way that I'd used them as well. And the diagnoses that I would collect were validation around me being, for want of a better word, fucked, really. Yeah. Sorry, can I use the F word? You can use whatever word you like. I'm very okay. comfortable with all of I them. Mean- Good, because that's like that's the like the ultimate descriptor for it, right? Is like you know on the bones of my ass, yeah. and it was validating to have medical professionals tell me that I was you know all these things, and it was kind of their version of telling me what I felt. But at the same time, that nest didn't necessarily then extend into like help around that stuff. Like there was medications, and then there was this, that, and that, like. But ultimately, like I needed to sleep, I needed to eat, and I needed to stop using drugs. <laughs> Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, like you can medicate me till the cows come home, but if I'm if I haven't got the bare minimum of the biological basics, I'm probably not going to do very well. It never occurred to me, and I remember that moment very clearly. It like sobered me up on the spot, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Because they said to me, "Well, they said to my stepmother, we can't help her until she's ready to help herself." And I was angry, and I was like, "They don't even, you know, they've let me down. They, you know, the victim stuff." Oh, externalizing the blame onto everybody else. Yeah, and yes, there is, you know, like there is an element of that, but there is also an element of them having a healthy boundary around, like, we can't take somebody on who isn't willing to help themselves. So, like, yes, and all. Eventually, you know, I worked pretty hard. 
I didn't work pretty hard, but I, I reached out for help. Again, I did another admissions process. I knew all the right things to say this time. I said all the right things and I went into that. And I spent the next eight weeks pretty confused. I didn't really understand. You know, I was 16. Like, I didn't even have a frontal lobe yet. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really young. What was, yeah. the, what was the process within the eight weeks? Was it fairly structured for you? Yeah. So, God, it was like, you know, what? 15 years ago now, but I did two weeks of detox. What was that I like? Was, that, I'm really curious, given you were on ice and all sorts of stuff at that point, what was that detox like for you? I was in psychosis, but I think that there was also like being self-aware around the fact of allowing myself to kind of, I felt so broken. I think this is an overwhelming thread in my story is that like any time that there was something that kind of identified why I felt different and alien to everybody else. I leaned right into it. My diagnosis was psychosis and I was experiencing psychosis, but there was also a part of me that was grabbing that with both hands and pushing, like dramatizing that a little bit, you know, like, so somebody would say, oh, I think that you're hearing voices. And I'd be like, no, I see a monkey, you know, and whether or not that was happening or not is irrelevant because I think it's that thing that we're talking about you know I was attention seeking because I needed attention it wasn't because I was bad or immoral or wrong it was just trying to match my outsides to my insides and so I was in psychosis but I probably pushed that and dramatized that a little bit more but that doesn't mean that that was irrelevant that was happening for a reason too. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the detox from ice, I mean, it's fairly, on the scheme of drugs, like it's fairly uncomplicated. Like, I mean, there is continued brain dopamine stuff and all that stuff. But in terms of like, I didn't feel dope sick. Like I wasn't like vomiting or knocking me or like, you know, sweating it out or anything like that. Okay, so, so physically there wasn't a lot that you had to deal with. No, but I think that then, you know, of course I switched the witch for the bitch and, you know, I stop using ice and I start eating food, I start gaining weight, then I, I have an eating disorder. <laughs> you know, like, okay. So I was in there, detox for two weeks and then just spent most of the time, like I do think I absorbed some information from there. You know, there was a lot of inner child work and a lot of functional adult work. It was a very 12-step based program. Mm. It's um, a rehab that's designed on the meadows in the US. So I know now it's kind of like that seed planting. You know, I'm in my 30s now and I can kind of reach back and go, why do I know this? But it's because it did get happened. It landed, went way back but, then. But I think that one of the things that was really traumatic in there was I was doing a family program where my parents came in and we did a week of realities. Like, so we were sharing, you know, like what we felt about our family system. I was first confronted with like my codependency in there because my stepmother started crying and I immediately started crying because she was crying. And I didn't understand at the time because the the therapist said, that's not your feelings. And I was like, oh, so that was a bit confusing for me. But I understand now as an adult what that meant. And the other thing that I really vividly remember was when I was told that I was not going to be able to be friends with my friends anymore. Oh, wow. The thing of like slippery people, slippery places kind of stuff. And I found that really hard to stomach. And it was probably one of the reasons why I didn't actually enter recovery until six years later was because I felt in retrospect I really needed a sense of community and I really needed a peer group and even though those people that I was hanging out with were older than me I felt a connection to them that I know as a parent I would be very concerned about but I believe that 
people are always just looking for connection and I wasn't finding that with the recovery groups and the groups that they were putting me in because I was so young and so I don't think that that could have gone any other way but I did immediately return back to those friends after I did have a few friends that I was in there with that I did some 12-step meetings with afterwards and we kind of got around as a group and you know they were really great people but I'm looking for the quick fix so I'm not going to develop intimate relationships with other people when I've already got a group of people. No you're not and that's so crucial at that agent stage as well is that you know those social connections with friends which are at that point becoming way more important than parents I think to be told you know when you're at your lowest ebb one of your lowest ebbs that that you've got to give that up yeah without having a strategy to handle it is is a tough ask and the brain capacity to find new like to develop new things right so even when I was raving you know and I was using ice a lot I would go to rave sober because I was getting what I needed from walking into a room or not even a room like a stadium full of people and knowing people and them knowing me and me mattering you know and so I would walk in and be like hey how you going oh my god it's so good to see you if you come up the front do you want a cigarette you know come backstage you know all that kind of stuff and then what would happen is I, that was the only time that I was sober during the week is that that Saturday night and then once the kick-on happened that's when I would start using again and then I would use up until Saturday and that is just like the number one, like that just says that's that's so interesting. Yeah. Of how I was getting what I needed that I thought I was getting from drugs from people, but the people that I was then surrounding my, myself with afterwards, like they were giving me what I needed, but then we were all kicking on together as well. Yeah. But you all had the commonality of, of the using, yeah. I guess. So that was your link. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that sense of community, like Mm. we were bonding over something. And I know that as a parent now, like I'm definitely like trying to build in community into my children's lives, but I know that my my parents did do that for me. You know, I did, I had like an after-school hobby that I spent a lot of time with. You know, it was the first place that I went when my mother died. You know, I had that kind of security of community and stuff. Somewhere along the way, the drugs became more important. It wasn't as if I was lacking that. It was just that the perfect storm happens and I happened to have a brain that wanted drugs and I happened to have the trauma that needed the drugs and all the things happen. And, and I think I might have touched on this last time. In some ways, the drug saved my life in that period. I, I remember that comment you know? actually, which is why I wanted to pick up with part B was it stayed with me since the last time we chatted that mm. you said, I may not be here if it wasn't for the drugs at that time. To, in yeah. some ways they saved you. Yeah. Well, you did two weeks of detox in rehab and then another six weeks. Yes. Another interesting part about that that I can remember is that I think it might have been at the end of the two-week detox. I got my parents in and I got like the head of the program in to a meeting. Look, I mean, they probably saw right through me, but I thought I was quite clever. I wove this whole story about how I wanted just to be a normal 16-year-old girl. I wanted to braid hair, go to movie marathons, like do all the things that, you know, I thought that I was meant to be doing and I wanted to leave. Like I wanted to get out and they agreed and I went home and the first thing that I did was go and find the very last shard of ice that I had in the house and use it. And I called, I, I got high 
and then I called the nurse's station and it, and I remember where I was like and then I got crying down the phone like I don't know what I'm doing I don't know what I'm doing I don't know how to stop and I knew that that's what I was doing. They probably knew that that was what I was doing. I thought I was being very clever. (laughs) No, you weren't. But no. (laughs) You're being a typical adolescent. I know. (laughs) So, you know, like, and then I got high and I was able to be confronted with my powerlessness, you know, over that. And they got me back in the next day. So I only spent like two days or three days out before I went back in. And I didn't have to detox again because I'd already detoxed and, you know, I'd only had a little bit. And I felt a bit more committed, but I wasn't committed enough to lose the things that I didn't want to lose. You know, I wanted to still be in control of it. I didn't want to surrender to the process. I just wanted to be in control. And, you know, I, I really think that at that time period, like I look back at that now and I just think I don't know many people that can get it that young, you know, because there it does require a semblance of impulse control Uh, (laughs) and it's pretty like it's kind of that I had to be allowed to reach the rock bottom you're not going to be open to hearing why Mm. the work is important and I find that with every client who's brought to me rather than choosing to come Mm. is that you know what if if you don't want to change what's working for you or Mm. even if you do but you're scared because what's on the other side of giving it up then it's a really difficult difficult place to be and it's difficult work to do Mm -hmm. moving along I guess essentially like I then went home after that and I reconnected with my parents and I had a little sister who I looked after and you know I was still partying but I was just a little bit less on I don't really remember I think that probably I think I started using again pretty quickly after that and how did your parents handle that time given you know you'd been in rehab you came home you probably did part of the process at least something landed if not all of it Mm. but how were they at that time it's a great question who would know (laughs) i didn't care (laughs) how were they with you though were they more controlling did they pull the boundaries in or did they go you know what we've lost control here we just have to hope we can influence i think they'd had a child so there was a nine month old in the house or roundabouts i think there was a sense of like we've done everything that we can for her. We're going to focus on the kid that needs us. Not that I didn't need them, but, and I was kind of trying to hold it together. Like I'd gone for a job interview, but I went high, so I didn't get it. You know, I was dating a boy. I was doing meetings. I was, you know, doing, I was less out of control, but I was still doing the same things which kind of ties into the rest of my story, right? Take us there. Well, around January of the next year, so we're talking 06 now, when I would have been in year 11, my parents managed, well, through the psychiatrist at the rehab that I was at, they suggested that I went to a a school for kids with behavioural difficulties. And so I re-entered year 10 and I went to a school that was a boarding school for five days a week and then I would come home on the weekends. And that school was life-changing for the reasons that I can see that I got a sense of community. I had supervision. I had a really good sense of community. Like those kids saved my life and I got self-esteem from doing schoolwork. I was able to finish my year 10 and do well because at that time there was a high school certificate Mm. and I was still doing, so what would happen is I would go there from Monday to Friday and then I would leave on Friday afternoons and I would go and party and use drugs and do all the things. 
but they, and then they would drug test me on the Monday. But because they weren't really set up at that time for people that were using drugs, they were only really set up for autistic people, manic depression, extreme behavioral difficulties, you know, schizophrenic kids, like all that kind of stuff, because they weren't really set up for somebody that was kind of choosing, yeah. <laughs> choosing their heart, you know. <laughs> They would drug test me, but those drug tests would always come back clean, which never made sense to me. But I had a really chronic eating disorder as well. And so I was supervised a lot because I was bulimic. And along that way, uh, I think it would have been maybe March or April of that year, I went out and I used ice and I had a really, really horrendous trip. And I did actually end up, like I start, I, I remember I was talking to my dead mother underneath somebody's bed in Sydney somewhere. Somebody called me a cab and I went home and I said to my father, you know, mum says hi, meaning my dead mother. And I remember the look on his face, you know, I remember like how much despair I was causing him. And then I said to him, you need to lock all the balcony doors in the house because I'm going to kill myself today. And I think that was the last time I ever used ice. You know, that was like, I kind of had this kind of like crack through the screen of self-obsession and I was able to see how much pain I was causing the person that loved me most in this world. Like it wasn't like a magic wand. It wasn't like I was instantly cured of all my things because it was insanely complex by then. Like it wasn't just that I was using ice. Yeah, it was like that I was, you know, dating men and old older than me. I was a chronic, I was a chronic liar. I was, you know, like all these things. Like it was, so it wasn't a magic wand, but it certainly took off one layer. But now I know because I'm in recovery from drugs now is that like a drug is a drug is a drug. It doesn't matter what drug I was using. I was still engaging with that disease. So I stopped using ice, but I mean, <laughs> everything else was on the cards. <laughs> Win. Um, little yeah, win. Yeah, but little win. We'll take what we can get. But yeah, like, I mean, that year was complex. Like, I, I had a suicide attempt and I ended up in an adult psychiatric ward scheduled for 72 hours, and that was terrifying, like, really scary. My dad started. Can I, can setting- I get you to expand on that? Because I think that's really interesting because it's something that people are not really aware of what it's like when that happens. Yeah. When, okay. it's, when the control is completely out of your hands. And also, you know, for people under 18, when it's completely, it becomes completely out of their parents' hands as well and what the experience is like. So I did, because I attempted when I was in the the hospital, the intent behind it was the problem, not the actual impact. So I got a scarf and tried to choke myself. Like it was never going to (laughs) work. Like, yeah. yeah. So, but. And at that time, like the catalyst, and I mean, you know, this is another thing that I find interesting is like how subtle, uh, not subtle, but like I'd eaten a block of chocolate and that was enough. Okay. Like it was enough for me to be like, something so innocuous that you could start to hate yourself or the world or whatever it was that was going on in your head. Yeah. And I had other situations like that where I'd like eaten McDonald's on a train and I wanted to throw myself in front of the train. And, you know, I messaged my dad saying, you know, help me. And he met me at Central Station to stop me from jumping in front of the train, which I was probably never going to do. But the intention was there. You know, it wasn't necessarily the impact, but, you know, that despair and and the fact that that felt like the only answer to that, that was the scary part so because I had done that the hospital called an ambulance and I was put into the ambulance and taken to a psychiatric ward and 
My parents were called. I think my dad showed up and he had to sign some forms. I realized that this was not his fault, but I can see how in other circumstances I would have seen that. I think it was the matter of where I did it. If I did it at home and that happened, I probably would have been angry at him, but I felt I did feel like he had his hands off that. But, you know, it was, they didn't have enough beds in there. So I was put on a couch and the patients were able to walk around at night. And so I would wake up and there'd be people standing over my bed or my couch. And my sister, my older sister came to visit me and she, because we'd lost our brother to suicide, you know, she was distraught. And I just, it's like there there was the two thoughts going on, right? I want to say that I was in there going, oh, this is my future. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, and I, and I felt anything about it, but really the way that I really felt about it was Jesus is a good story. (laughs) <laughs> well it turns out you're right <laughs> yeah well yeah, In part. yeah. <laughs> but it was more like oh, I can't wait to tell the guy that isn't paying attention to me that I tried to kill myself and then he'll feel really bad for me and then he'll want to answer oh, my phone calls okay you see that yeah, story so that kind of like again with the attention stuff right it's like I wanted attention and I needed attention, but some part of my self-harm was who I sought those atten- that attention yeah. from. And a lot of my suicide attempts have been attached to a boy, to the overwhelming unmanageability that I feel when they stop replying or when, well, I mean, we didn't have Instagram back then, but I notice it in adolescence now like when they're not the person that sees the story that I put up specifically from them that kind of that kind of intention you know I'd be on MSN I'm showing my age but I'd be on MSN and I'd be like he's not replying he doesn't care about me because I'm self-obsessed I don't care what he's doing abandonment rejection oh my god he could have just gone to the toilet for a little bit and I'm like oh my god like it's all over or some perceived slight or something like that and you know next minute I'm downing a bottle of Panadol you know and so that did happen a lot that year like there was a lot of that like really extreme reactions to very small things but I had no regulation like I just had nothing just completely reactive yeah and thankfully you know a lot like I obviously did not want to die I would do things like I would take all of my Seroquel and then I'd walk into my dad's office and I would say I've just done this and he'd go okay and they'd take me to the hospital and I'd get my stomach pumped and would come home and you know, blah blah but that was the one time that I got scheduled I think potentially that's the one time I remember being scheduled but I did have circumstances where like I was taken up to the hospital because I had to get blood tests to check my potassium levels because they were worried that my heart was going to stop because I was vomiting up to 40 times a day you know sometimes I would eat to vomit you know that was a bulimia was, yeah yeah. And so I was getting very, very thin. And, you know, I remember going to a eating disorder specialist and saying to them, I'll stop once my stomach's gone. And I showed her the little bit of the stomach, you know, that I wanted gone. And she was like, I, "That you might find that that's your uterus. And I was like, well, can we cut it out, please? You know, so there was a lot of that, like, you know, eating disorders are so complex, mm. but the self-harm and the willing to do whatever it took to be the way that I thought that I needed to be. Yeah, I remember like I managed to con a doctor into giving me Xenical, which was a fat loss drug at the time because I said that if I gained weight, I was going to kill myself, you know. So there was a lot of that, like, just so unmanageable. I managed to finish your 10, so... (laughs) 
all this is happening in year 10. It's quite incredible, to be honest. Well, my second year, I was 17. Still. Yeah, so I finished up that year and I finished off year 10 and I went back to my old job and I begged my boss for my job back and I got my job back and then I kind of went on my way. But I guess the next stage was the adulthood stuff. Not necessarily adulthood, but the living in the real world and trying to manage all of these I would say that this part of my life is probably, it's it's an interesting thing. I would say that it was actually the worst part because the chaos that I was for the years prior was outside. It was on my sleeve. It was very obvious. You'd meet me in the street and you would know that I was a mess. But what I managed to do after I left that place was I managed to tuck it all behind me still engage with it but it was I wasn't like the flailing balloon man out the front of the car sales place anymore I wasn't I was smacking people in the face without them knowing that was going to happen whereas when you engaged with me earlier than that you would just know like it was all there your heart was on your sleeve yeah 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 so this from 18 to 23 I did a lot of harm like a lot of harm to you and to relationships yeah 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 Yeah, because it wasn't immediately obvious that I was going to be as, I wouldn't use the word selfish, but I guess that's what other people would say, as as self-seeking as I was. So all those behaviours were actually still there, but you were just now masking them. Yeah, yeah, big time, yeah. What were the biggest challenges between 18 and 23? Because, I mean, some of them would have been the same challenges, but then they morphed into something else because actually... You weren't out there being chaotic and dragging everyone else into your chaos, which actually worked for you. You know, in some ways that was that was your panacea for it all. But what happened to you then when suddenly the mask has gone up, but actually internally all that flux is still there? I think the main thing that I remember through the thread, because, I mean, 18 to 23 is a very long period of time at that age, you know, like it's not now, but it is. it, is, it was back then. The main thread was that I just had no ability to pause after a thought. So I would think, text that guy outside of my relationship and I would be like texting him. And I would have this moment where I'd go, I think one of, I mean, like without wanting to get into like what I've done, well, I guess we do want to at some point, but I'm in a 12-step fellowship and a lot of people talk about being like brainwashed, like because there's, you know, like, there's theories around that and cultural stuff. But really, my brain did need a wash. Like, I, I wanted a lobotomy. It was, <laughs> it was going to be better than what was going on in your head. I really, I really wanted a lobotomy. Like, I felt like I just had no pause button. And I would do things like I'd say, oh, my God, I'm so crazy. And I would just do like at 18 to 23, I'm not necessarily going to have a huge amount of impulse control, but the harm that it was causing me, like, you know, somebody else's impulse control around maybe buying like a cute dress at Cotton On was me sleeping with a guy on a Saturday night while my boyfriend was in the other room. Yeah, okay. Or just ris- like still risk-taking. Super in risk-taking. In a different way. And then like, or the despair that I felt when I would go to the pub with my friends and at some point I'd gotten into my head that or I'd heard somebody or something had triggered in my head for me to go, we should get a bag of Coke and dog with a bone. I cannot 
cannot off she goes go. yeah I'm like we're doing this this is what we're happening and I'm like afterwards feeling so embarrassed for how shameless I was in that way like you know I like people would be like you know I don't really feel like that tonight oh Shah it's you know it's a Wednesday night and maybe not and I'd be like no no I've decided yeah the thoughts there I can't I can't actually stop it now yeah yeah so there's there was that kind of stuff and you know, my, my life on the outside, like I always say, like I had the dog, the partner, the money in the bank, the car that worked, you know, I was renting a property. I had all the things that, you know, capitalism tells us that we need but to have. But you also looked like a grown-up from outside. I, yeah. And I, you know, changed jobs and then I went back to the old job and I did like, my, that was my version of like a geographical. And I remember at one point I got a credit card out to fix myself, you know, so I was like doing energetic healing, Reiki. At one point I wanted to come off all my medication, which I think was in in the future important because I was still on the same amount that I was on when I was in like psychosis. So I, there was part of me that was like, I've just kind of been left on this stuff and I don't really know what to do, but I had to, I was paying for like through the nose for psychiatrists and then exercise physiology and like doing all this stuff. And, and even though I had all this knowledge from my past, like at no point did I think, well, maybe all of this stuff is irrelevant or being cancelled out by my alcohol use. (laughs) Just moved on. Yeah. Maybe drink driving home after a Reiki appointment might not necessarily be. <laughs> Did you really? Uh, I might Maybe. not admit that. <laughs> Maybe. Euphemism, euphemism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like I had a numerous long-term partners throughout that, like not numerous, I had two in particular, but I would be stepping out on that relationship every time I got wind of a new thing and I had a really strong validation addiction, you know, so I spent a long time getting men to tell me that they really liked me and they thought I was hot and they wanted to sleep with me. And then when they realized that I was crazy, that was part of that cycle as well. Like it wasn't just that I wanted them to tell me that they thought I was wonderful. I also wanted them to tell me how, how awful they thought I was. And so, you know, I would, I didn't realize that till much later, okay. but that was part of my cycle, this high ego, low self-esteem you know, running around like I'm the bee's knees, but really I think I'm the worst person. Oh, you're planet. so fragile underneath, yeah. Yeah, and I weaponise my story a lot. You know, like I remember very vividly sitting on gutters a lot, a lot of nights talking about how I used to be an ice addict. Meanwhile, you know, drinking shots of tequila and going to NA meetings, you know, like I, I was doing meetings through like sporadically throughout this time, but I did not believe that I had a problem with alcohol. Like I was like, well, I'm a... I'm a speed addict. Like, why would I have a problem with alcohol? And I'd go to these meetings and they would tell me alcohol is a drug. We have to abstain from all drugs in order to recover. And I'd be like, but not me. That's for you guys, but not for me. <laughs> so on a Saturday night, there was a meeting at midnight where I live and I would go out to the pub and I would get drunk and then I'd take a go break to the meeting on the way go home. to the meeting and then I would go back and I would think that nobody knew what I was doing you know, the insanity that I was in around like just running my own race and not caring about what other people were going through. It was all about me. And just because I had all these things on the outside, like I believed that I was doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. But you so weren't. No. (laughs) I was doing the best I could. With what you had. The very best that I could. Totally agree. So what took you from that kind of, 18 to 23, where really those patterns were still playing out, but they were just covered better. 
for want of a better yeah. word. But you've moved into this space where obviously you're a gorgeous, fully functioning human being with a great life. Can, I'm so glad you think that. That's I, the idea. I, I do. So, you know what, unless you're hoodwinking still and doing a really good job of it, <laughs> that's exactly what yeah, I think. I am pretty transparent. I, I think can, you I, are. I, I like to think I'm quite manipulative, but I don't think I could have you that caught. No, yeah. I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. You've come such a long way. I'm kind of curious to know when was the point that the penny dropped where you went, most of what I do is self-sabotage and unless I start mm. to do things differently, unless I really tap into these support networks that are out there that want to help me, that I'm just going to keep doing it. It's going to, it might turn into different things, but I'm going to keep on with these patterns and going down this road I'm on. This is like one of the hardest things to tell people because I know that like when I'm telling my story or when I'm when when my story is coming up it's because people want to know how I did it the trouble is it's it's like it wasn't me like <laughs> clearly it was an accident it was good timing it was luck it was hard work it was willingness but it was also just like a really, really, really long process that I'm still in. And I wish that I had an answer for, particularly for parents that like have children going through this because the answer is time, you know, and the answer was reaching my own rock bottoms. But what happened was I was in a relationship for four years and he was a very good man, but we were not good for each other. And I was stepping out on that relationship. I was drinking too much. I was blaming it, his drinking. And I mean, he drank too much as well, but I blamed his drinking for all my problems. And I was very violent. He was violent. We just sucked the life out of each other. And he just loved me. That's all, all he wanted in life was me. And I was sleeping with somebody else and I a couple of things happened at the same time. So it was like that lobotomy stuff where I was just like, I had a thought and I did it. And my ex was quite a big guy. You know, he was like, you would probably think he was a footy player. You know, he was quite large. And the guy that I was sleeping with was not. And I hope he could run fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was about the time that iMessage came out and my ex and I, we had the same Apple account and I didn't realize that he was receiving my text messages. And when I realized, I was like, well, this is not good, you know, and I don't actually know to this day because part of my men's process to him is leaving him alone. I don't know to this day if he actually knew, but what that triggered in me was like damage control, but it was different to the damage control that I'd done in the past. So I woke up with him and my old boss had said to me, if you don't start doing those meetings properly, I'm going to fire you. So I lost my relationship. I was going to lose my job. Okay. And whether or not those things were real or not, they were enough for me to go to go to a meeting. And I went to that meeting and I walked in and I said, I know all you, but I don't want anybody to talk to me. I'm only here to save my job. But I didn't bring a lighter, so someone's going to have to give me a lighter at the end of the meeting for my cigarette, but I don't want anybody to talk to me. I don't want anything that you guys have. After that meeting, like this girl approached me and she handed me a lighter and she handed me a piece of paper and it said, I have bronchitis and I've lost my voice, but here's my number. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, fair play, you know. 
<laughs> Good honour. So, I know, yeah. So, you know, that kind of gave me the courage to go to another meeting. And so the next day I went to another meeting and I bumped into somebody that I'd known from years past, from recoveries past. And she used to growl at me when I'd walked in the door. And we're talking somebody who had been, you know, on the streets at nine. She had, you know, tattoos on her face. And like, you know, she was very angry. And she saw me and she said oh my god it's so nice to see you and I was like whoa (laughs) like what do you mean you're not like trying to attack me like you know and she was like it's just it's really really nice to see you and I was like okay I want what she's got and that's how it happened you know kind of accidentally engaging in what was there all along what was on offer the whole time but I was humiliated enough that I was willing to let go of all the stories that I'd told myself of why I didn't belong with these people. And, you know, those stories the of denial. I'm too young, I'm, a, yeah, I'm an ice addict. It was a spiritual rock bottom. In previous times, I'd had very physical and emotional rock bottoms where, you know, I'd tried to kill myself or I'd, you know, was in psychosis or I was this or I was that or, you know, I was like living in a squad house and all this kind of stuff. It was all very outside, but there was a part of me that just was like, I can't keep living this way. And it became life and death in a different way. And the unfortunate fact about that is that I can't tell you what the magic formula for that is. I don't think there is one. I think the formula is different for every single person. And it was internal. Like it was, I have a open-mindedness that I may not have the answer to this and I may not be a drug addict. Like, I mean, telling my story, it's pretty obvious, but I may not be a drug addict. I may not be a schizophrenic. I may not have BPD. I may not have an eating disorder. I may not have all these things or I could have all of them, but no matter what I've decided to tell myself about that denial, I'm willing to do what you're telling me right now so that I don't have to keep feeling this way. And so it was a blind faith. That that you kind of, you know what, you actually put your, your finger right on it when you said, mm. I finally accepted that I may not have the answers. Mm. And I think when you can give in to that and surrender to, I may not be able to figure this out alone, mm. and no one's going to have a magic bullet for me, no one's going to have a quick fix for me, but I'm willing to engage with a process that might get me on the right path. And I think we're, we're all on a path to some extent all of our lives. But, you mm. know, yours is obviously a, a bigger, wider path than the most. But you you had to reach that mm. point where, you, you know, where you went, I'm not going to be able to do this alone. And actually what I've been doing is telling myself I'm not like all those other people and now I might just have to accept that, you know what, I'm exactly like them yeah. in some ways. And I think as well as like one of the things that we say a lot is like, our best thinking got us here, you know, like that's like yeah. my best thinking landed me in a 12-step fellowship. Yeah. So maybe, <laughs> maybe my thinking isn't great, but I'm here and I'm going to, I think one of the things that like, and I appreciate that this isn't a podcast about spooking, like a, a, a therapeutic form. Um, so I want to be very careful that I'm not being like, this is the Listen, answer, I, I think not. I think anything that is brought up is really helpful because it's different strokes of different folks and people often don't know what's out there. Super interesting, right? Because I mean, at the moment, like we're going, like I, well, we, my family, we're going through one of those life on life terms things that people use drugs and alcohol over, you know, like we're going through a pretty severe crisis. And one of the things that I do after my 10 years in 12 step is like, I reach out 
for help. And so one of the main things that I've done is I've accessed Al-Anon, which is a fellowship for loved ones of addicts and alcoholics and eating disorders and anybody that's, you know, unmanageable. And so it's like I immediately reach out. And so I'm going to Al-Anon and then I have a business, right? So I have a price increase coming because cost of living, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so in order to help my self-esteem around that, because it is really hard as a small business owner to go, I'm worthy of being paid a living wage. I go to a fellowship called BDA, which is Business Debtors Anonymous, which helps for free, helps people build in spirituality into into their different lives, right? And so, like, there is, I think I shared in the last one where I was talking about, like, when I was a child and I was in primary school or even high school, like, I felt like all these other kids had this, like, this story book that told them what to do, how to talk to people, what to do, how to deal with money, do this, that. And I appreciate now that I've, like become less self-obsessed that nobody knows what they're doing <laughs> but it felt like now you're a parent you realize that don't yeah, you <laughs> no one knows but to me it felt like everybody else had the answer to life and everybody else had the instruction booklet and I felt like I was the only one that didn't know what to do and and what I have found is that through reaching out to peers and having people in that understand my history and can relate to it I don't have to spend so much time like shocking them into believing Mm. that I don't know what I'm doing. Like it's very normalized. Like the way we talk is like, you know, I'm even talking to you and I'm going, I forgot how normalized this all is in my community. But I mean, that's not necessarily like, I mean, that can be terrifying for some people. I know that like, you know, my husband's parents are like, why do you keep going to those meetings and talking about all the worst things that you've done in your life? And it's like, well, like I can't really explain to you how it works, but it does. But, you know, I, I have tools in my life that I that I don't have to pay for or wait on a waiting list for a specialist or do this stuff. But there's also a tool in there that says, like, we are not lawyers, financial advisors, tax agents, marriage counsellors, like parenting experts. You know, so if you do need support in that way, you do need to find an outside person. So there is a humility in that. But I I have just found, like, I kind of have the instruction booklet now. That's a word that's come right through the two sessions that we've had now is community. Your need for a sense of community, and it sounds like, it gives you that. I get what you mean. Mm. It's not the whole specialist realm. And if you need that, go and pay for it and, and find it. But for you, it's that connection and, mm. and the sense of community and what it feeds you spiritually. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been close to an adolescent who has been going through, like a family member of mine has been going through stuff like this, like what I was going through. And I remember arguing with somebody around like they need, I was saying they need self-esteem peers and structure and it was like completely agree why would we not send them somewhere that has that like the place that I went and I know I know the despair around like how the systems are difficult to navigate which is why you've got a why you've started a podcast right Mm -hmm. because I'm sure that you know that this is there's that supportive stuff that needs to happen that complement stuff but you know like the fight that I had to put up to get this adolescent anywhere that wasn't just a hospital room by themselves was really like I just couldn't understand why they couldn't see it the way that I saw it but I also understand that I was probably projecting my own trauma I get that but for me the key I guess and that's I mean that's what we're trying to get to right is like you know there's no magic formula there's no magic wand there's no magic amount of words that anybody could say to somebody it has to happen internally but the things that support that process are 
community, self-esteem, structure. And so like I have got that and that's, you know, I, I do a lot of service in my fellowship. So I spend a lot of time giving of myself to other people because I took for a really long time. But that's also given me, you know, now I'm on the PNC at my school and, you know, I'm like after this I'm going to the canteen. canteen. And, like, <laughs> and, you know, like I'm running a business and I, I know how to talk to people and like all those things that I think that parents want for their child. Like I, I'm living it and, you know, the people around me, the reason that I like I choose to remain anonymous is because the people around me have no idea. And there is self-esteem in that as well, you know, having a bit of anonymity around my stuff. Like there's a self-esteem around not being the person sitting on the gutter outside the pub talking about my life story. It just creates a bit of space for you, I think, a bit of space away from your story, which now, Definitely. you know, in the adult world is really helpful and I'm really conscious of time and the fact that you do have oh, to get you. to, that you do have got, to, get to the school time. canteen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I just wanted to kind of wrap up with a question that's also permeated, you know, in terms of your comments all the way through is the one person that you mention a lot who's always there in the crisis, which is dad. My beautiful father. Yeah. <laughs> what, can can I, is it, is it too intrusive to ask what your relationship with dad is like now? Oh. I love that man. He is so great. Yeah, he is. I don't know him and I reckon he's really <laughs> great. Everybody's got their stuff around their parents. Like that's why therapy exists. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, therapy exists because of parents. And there have been years gone by where I would have appreciated being able to be a little bit more open with him where I think that, you know, he could have maybe, you know, done better or, you know, in that way. But, he, you know, I think I did share, like I uh, have been open with him about some mm. of it and he's been really receptive to it. But in terms of our relationship like my dad is just like we do pnc together like (laughs) (laughs) he's the best i love him he's just one would argue maybe he needs some boundaries but you know like i can call him all sorts of names and be like dad am i you know can you have a look at the engine in my car and he's like okay you know like (laughs) he's there yeah he's been there and you know, he, he loves parenting. You know, he has got four daughters and a son that unfortunately has passed, you know, and he just wants us around all the time. You know, like my sister, my older sister moved back to the country a few years ago and it was like literally like my dad's dream come true. Like all he wants. He's had his family around him. Oh God, he just, and the things that he has done by accident have been things like he's always had a hobby. You know, I remember as a child, he would always leave on a Tuesday night to go do his hobby. And that was really important to me. You know, when I, I didn't realize, but when I then was like looking for a partner, <laughs> looking for a partner as if they just come. Um, <laughs> <laughs> With your checklist, which probably yeah. looked pretty similar to what your father is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Like, you know, like I have a, I have a husband who has a hobby. I have a husband who has, him. he's his own person. You know, I have a husband who is, you know, a feminist And uh, like my husband and my father are just like, they're the best of friends. They're super cute. But I mean, I don't, I appreciate that that is a privilege that I have that Mm. has been overwhelmingly like really important for me. My stepmother is also just an incredible human. I'm very, very, very lucky with my family. They never gave up, did they? And they never stopped loving you. I mean, that's kind of the underlying theme. And even when sometimes they had to actually take the step back for you to work it out yourself. And there are times that parents actually have to do that. We can't solve the problems for young people. They actually have to solve it themselves. And most of them have the capacity to do so if they've got the right support. But just knowing that you could be at a train station or in the city 
wanting to hurt yourself in front of it because you've eaten McDonald's and know that you can ring dad and he's going to yeah. appear yeah. is a pretty amazing parent. And I mean, that's the thing is like there is also a discernment of energy there, right? Mm. Like, I mean, you know, the amount of times that I was in crisis, you know, and. You tested him. There's no yeah, doubt about and, it. And it wasn't like he didn't abandon himself to put out my fire. Like yeah. he has always been like when I became a parent, you know, he kept saying to me over and over again, because like another part of my story is that I had postpartum psychosis with my daughter. And he kept saying to me, like, you can't put your, her oxygen mask on first. You know, like that was his, he would say that to me all the time. And I'm like, dad, I know. Like, <laughs> but, it's you know, true. he, I was in crisis so many times and he had this ability to know when the times to show up and the when the times to step back were. Yes. And that could have been the fact that he had an incredible partner. You know, his companion was, you know, they, they worked off each other, but there was just, there is this part of me that is grateful for the times that he didn't show up as well. Yeah. You know, because if daddy was always just saving me, there it wouldn't be, it have been. It becomes part of the problem. Totally, and totally. He, so, was, he was clearly a really wise man, but also, you know, undeniably loving and always has been. Girls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's absolutely. Like yeah. You know, and that's yeah. part of why where you're at today, I think, you know, we often underestimate what parents go through. You know, I, yeah. I, I sit with the trials and tribulations of, of adolescents every day and, you know, I really feel for them, but I often also really feel for the parents in the background who are, as yeah. you say, doing the best they can with what they've got and often they don't have a lot themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a parent now and I'm like, what the hell? Like, eh, well, that's the, that's why we go on to become parents. <laughs> it's the payback oh for God, the torturous like, teens like, we gave to our own. <laughs> I have no idea. Like I wrote a note to my daughter the other day and I signed it mum and I was like, she's almost seven. And I was like, mum, oh. I'm mum. That's me. Like, yeah. I still haven't. I'm like, no, no. Like, I'm a child. Like, why am I? <laughs> How can I be responsible for another human being? You know? Well, I think, but, Char, yeah. we might have to come back for a part C in time to come <laughs> and, and I'll do a parenting podcast and what it's actually like to be in the parenting role, which is quite yeah. different to quite different again. But I must let you go because I know that you've got to get, yes, um, got to, get to school canteen that. and I know that's yeah. important to you. Uh, yeah. Listen, all I can say is thank you so much for your time. For no the worries. willingness and, you know, for sharing what is a beautiful, big, vulnerable story. But, you know, what I'm privy to is the face across the screen and mm. and it's smiling from behind the eyes, which is always a gorgeous thing to see. So, you know, oh, good. <laughs> whatever life has thrown at you, you know, in those really tough teen and early 20 years, you've turned it around. All right. And yeah. you've carved out a life. And I think that's the story is the hope that it gives to other people that, you know what, you can really hit your rock bottom. But if you're willing and you're ready, life can actually be different. And it makes you a much more interesting person. Certainly does. <laughs> I could talk for hours, but I'm going to let you go. All right. Thank you so much. Jack. See you later, Shah. Take care. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Mind Rewind. Subscribe for free for future episodes. And if you're interested in sharing your own journey, please contact us at beanstalkconsulting.com.au. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14.